Bible to Timothy, 1 Timothy, read chapter 1, and the text for this morning's sermon will be verse 15. First Timothy chapter 1, <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Albeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show Forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith. And a good conscience, which some have put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. As far as we read God's word, the text for this morning's sermon is verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, and that, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. (laughs) 
After a week of self-examination, what is our assessment of ourselves? In other words, after spending a week looking at our lives and our hearts in the light of God's Word and in the light of His law, what conclusions have we drawn about ourselves? Is it, well, I know I have done some wrong, but overall I'm a pretty good person, you know? Or was the conclusion, yes, I know I am a sinner, but at least I'm not as sinful as that person sitting over there or that person on the other side of the congregation. Or was your conclusion, surely I am the chief of sinners. That was Paul's self-assessment. That is, if Paul were here this morning sitting in the pew or more likely standing behind this pulpit, if he had spent the week examining his own heart and life in the light of God's Word, the conclusion he would have drawn about himself was, I am the chief of sinners. And we say that because that's the humble confession that he makes here in this passage of Scripture. Praise be to God, there's more to his confession. The Apostle Paul does not end there. He does not wallow in his sense of guilt and shame, but the heart of his confession is not so much, I am the chief of sinners, but there's salvation for such sinners. Exactly because Christ Jesus came into this world with the express purpose of saving even a wretch like me. And that's the glorious news of the Gospel that we want to focus on this morning as we consider a word that is in harmony with the message of the Lord's Supper that we partake of this morning. So this morning we consider 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 using as our theme salvation for the chief of sinners. First we'll look at the humble confession. Second we'll look at the saving advent or saving coming. And then third at the faithful saying. Paul makes a humble confession here in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. He says at the end of the verse that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He's saying, I am the chief of sinners. And he says this as he considers his own sinfulness, especially his past sins. He clearly has that in view in light of what he said in verse 13. Verse 13, he says, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. Paul says, I was a, a blasphemer. I spoke evil about God, and specifically, I spoke evil about Jesus Christ. Because as a Pharisee, when he heard about Jesus Christ, he refused to believe that he was indeed the Son of God, that he was indeed the promised Messiah, and thus he spoke evil 
Concerning the Son of God, he was a blasphemer. It was more, he was a persecutor. And not just a persecutor among many, but the most bitter persecutor of them all. He was one who breathed threatenings and slaughter. The entire purpose of his life was to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. He was a persecutor. And what is more, he was injurious. That is, he was insolent. And the idea of those terms is he was so proud, so arrogant, that he was constantly heaping up insults upon others. And almost certainly this is a reference to his self-righteous pride as a Pharisee, viewing himself as one who could earn God's favor by his own obedience, and thus one who judged anyone else who did not measure up to his own standard. Paul was mindful of his past sins. But not just his past sins, but also his present sins. Because his word here is not that I was the chief of sinners, but I am. I am right now the chief of sinners. He says this as the one who confesses elsewhere the evil that I would not, that I find myself doing, and the the good that I would, I fail to do. And as Paul considers his own sinfulness, he's led to conclude, I am the chief, the foremost of sinners. This is the same humble confession he makes in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9 where he says, For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. This is the same confession he makes in Ephesians 3 verse 8 who am less than the least of all saints. That is, among all the saints whom Christ Jesus came into this world to save, surely I am first and foremost. God's grace is magnified most in me. That is how I believe this statement is to be understood. I say that because there is considerable debate about what exactly the Apostle Paul is getting at. He says, I am the chief of sinners. And among the different views that are out there, one of them is that Paul really was the worst of sinners from, in an absolute sense, from an objective point of view. That is, if we could somehow take all of God's people and measure their sinfulness, both the quantity as well as the the intensity of their sins, if you lined up everyone whom God saved in Jesus Christ, that Paul really was the absolute worst one of them, the most sinful. That's one interpretation. That's a wrong interpretation of this passage. It's wrong because it's out of harmony with how Scripture teaches us to view one another. For while there are degrees of sinfulness and degrees of sin, nevertheless, Scripture nowhere encourages us to go around comparing ourselves one to another, trying to set our sins side by side to see who's worse. So that interpretation is out of harmony with the whole of Scripture, but What is worse 
that interpretation that Paul from an in an absolute sense, was indeed the worst of sinners is wrong because, well, think of the implications. It means for us who gather here this morning, who recognize our own sinfulness, we can breathe a sigh of relief and say, well, though I'm a sinner, at least I'm not as bad as the Apostle Paul was. There's one who was worst. And that's dangerous thinking. This passage is not teaching us that from an objective point of view, the Apostle Paul was truly the foremost sinner. But rather, this language that the Apostle Paul uses is the confession of every child of God as he comes to see and understand his own sinfulness. That is, when we look at our own lives in the light of God's Word, we're led to say, surely I am the chief of sinners. And we say that because we know our own sins by experience. Whereas with others, we know their sins only from what we see, only from what we hear. And even then, it's not so much a comparison between each other, but it's a comparison between my life and the standard of God's law. He says, obey me perfectly, and I see how far short I fall of that. And thus I'm led to conclude, surely I am the chief of sinners. Again, that's the confession each one of us are to make so that the Apostle Paul were here this morning. I would have a word with him. Paul, you may think that you are the chief of sinners, but I respectfully disagree. I am. Let me tell you why I say that. Because I know the sins that I commit behind closed doors. Yes, Paul, I heard you, that you were one who was a blasphemer. But Paul, you have no idea my sins that I commit when no one else is looking. You have no idea what I have said in the privacy of my own home. You have no idea what I've done behind closed doors. But I do. And God does because He tells us the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. So Paul, because of the sins I commit behind closed doors, I say I'm the chief of sinners, but there's more. Because in addition to that, I know the sinfulness of my own heart and mind. I know the sinfulness of my thoughts and of my desires. Yes, Paul, you can say that you persecuted the church. But you have no idea what goes on inside of here and inside of here. My sins within my heart and with my mind are so corrupt, so vile, that if others somehow knew about them, if others had access to my heart and mind, 
I'm not sure anyone would talk to me again. I'm not sure I could ever show my face in public again. But I know that sinfulness. And God knows it too. Because as we sang a versification of Psalm 139, He's the one who searches our hearts. The one who knows our thoughts. And for that reason, I say I am the chief of sinners. Now there's still more, Paul. I'm the chief of sinners also because I sin against grace. You said you were insolent, you were injurious, you were a proud, self-righteous Pharisee, and the reality is I'm no different from you there. But my sins are worse than that. I sin against grace, Paul. I have so much to be thankful for, but in my heart is so much unthankfulness. I've been given the gift of faith, and yet my heart is filled with unbelief. I've been made righteous on the basis of Christ's saving work, but yet I make myself guilty again and again on account of my sins. I've been freed from the slavery, from the bondage of sin, but yet I go back to sin as though I'm still a slave. I'm the one who, in my heart, justifies sin, saying it'll be forgiven. I'm a practical antinomian if there ever was one. It's for that reason, Paul, Though you may think you're the chief of sinners, the reality is I am the chief of sinners. But now it gets even worse. Because not only do I know the sins I commit behind closed doors, not only do I know the sinfulness of my heart and my mind, not only do I sin against grace, but I sin against better knowledge. That is, I cannot say what you said. You told us that you obtained mercy because you did it in ignorance, in unbelief. But that's not true of my sin. I sin against better knowledge. That is, I'm guilty of presumptuous sins, high handed sins. I am no different than Adam to whom God said, do not eat of this tree. He understood perfectly well that he was doing something sinful and I'm the exact same. God has told me, do not do this. Do not do that. And then I go and do the very thing he told me not to do. And it's for all these reasons, Paul, I must respectfully disagree. I am the chief of sinners. Is that your confession, child of God? Is it truly mine? It's an important question because there's a danger for us, a temptation for us. That though I trust every one of us is willing to acknowledge I am a sinner, we're reluctant to add that word, I am the chief of sinners. The danger, the temptation for us is to 
say, yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I would never do what that person does. And we begin to think we're slightly above others. And it's exactly because that is a temptation for us. that We see the value, we see the importance of God's law and of a week of self-examination. For God's law shows us our sinfulness. Yes, it's true, we are no longer under the law in the sense of being required to keep the law in order to be right with God. But God's law is still good, it's still useful, it's still valuable, and that's a part of what we read. 1 Timothy 1 verse 8, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. And a lawful use of the law is to hold it up as a mirror so that we can see ourselves for what we are, so that we see our own sinfulness. And that's the value of a a week of self-examination. Because when we give that process more than just a lick and a promise, the only conclusion we can possibly draw about ourselves is that I am truly the chief of sinners. I must be. There's no way there is any other Christian who was and remains such a sinner as me. So is that your confession? If it is, then hear the good news of the Gospel. That Christ Jesus came to save such sinners. And that's what we want to look at next. His saving coming, His saving advent. That word advent just refers to Christ's coming. And do notice that He came. Verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world. That is, in the fullness of time, He was born of a woman. He was made under the law. He became partakers of our flesh and blood. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Notice that implied in that is His deity. Because we do not read He was born into this world. That's a true statement. But we read He came into this world. And for one to come into this world demands that He existed before He came into this world. So that this Christ Jesus of whom the text speaks is not a mere man. Yes, he is, a mere, he is a man because he's Jesus of Nazareth. But he's not a mere man because he's Christ Jesus who came into this world. His birth was not his beginning. He is the eternal Son of God. But yet though that's true, In an act of humility, He still came. And indeed, this was a part of His humiliation. Because by coming into this world, that involved more than a change of location. It was that. He he went from one location, heaven, to another, this earth. But it was not just a change in location, it was a change of condition. It was a change in His 
spiritual and moral environment, and that he came from heaven. He came from the place of glory, where he enjoyed perfect fellowship with the Father. He left that behind and came into this world, into the realm of sin and misery, into the sphere in which the curse of sin reigns. He came to a place where he'd be surrounded by sin and sinners, all of which is repulsive to his very being as the holy and righteous God. So that this coming is an act of his condescending grace. This is his love that we see in this. So he came into this world. Another question becomes why? What, what was his purpose? What was his reason in coming? Was it to solve all the world's problems? To bring about social justice? To end poverty? To abolish war? Was it to reform the world? To establish earthly peace and prosperity so that we could all live and die happily ever after? No. It's not that. He did not come to set up an earthly kingdom, and we say that because of this text. It tells us from a positive point of view his purpose, why he came. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world. Here's the purpose to save sinners. That's why. For our salvation. And literally, the text has a different word order. He came sinners to save. It's telling us the kind of salvation he came to accomplish, a spiritual salvation. He came to deliver us from our sin, from the the guilt of it, from the, the power and the corruption of it, from the consequences, the punishment that we deserve for it. And not only did He came to rescue us from our sin and misery, but He came to bestow upon us the the blessings of salvation. He came to give us His own righteousness that we might be accepted of God. He came to give us new life and liberty. He came to give us all the blessings of salvation that He lavishes upon us. So that when we read, He came to save sinners. We must understand that word save in the broadest sense of delivering us from the greatest imaginable evil and giving us instead the the greatest possible good. And note well, He came to save. He did not come to tell us how to save ourselves He did not come to make salvation possible if only we believe. He did not come to help us along in accomplishing our own salvation. But Christ Jesus came into this world to save. He came to do the thing Himself. He came to save us sovereignly, efficaciously, powerfully, as the Son of God made flesh. 
That's his purpose. Which leads to a follow-up question. Well, how does he save? He saved us by his life, death, and resurrection. For you see, when the passage speaks of him coming into this world, when we look at that phrase, coming into this world in the light of the rest of Scripture, we see that there's more to it than his incarnation. That's included that God came into this world and became a man, but his coming really includes the whole of his saving work, the heart of which was his atoning death at Calvary. And really, that's one of the main reasons he became a man. He, he came into this world so that he might die, so that he might give his life at the cross of Calvary in order to accomplish our salvation. But not only did he give his life, he arose again because he makes us partakers of that salvation. He gives us his own life. And it's that very fact that we see in the Lord's Supper this morning. The Lord's Supper points us to how He saved us. For it does point us to His incarnation. And that on the table there's bread and there's wine pointing us to the fact that He became partaker of our flesh and blood. But we know that that bread will be broken and that wine will be poured out reminding us His body was broken. His blood was shed. He died at Calvary. But then those elements will be handed out to us. They'll be communicated to us. We'll partake of them, reminding us that we now partake of Jesus Christ by faith. That's what the, what the Lord's Supper points us to. The fact that Christ Jesus came into this world to save the chief of sinners. And now consider for a moment what that means for you and for me. It means, first of all, child of God, there's forgiveness for your sins and for mine. For sinners, beloved. Not for the righteous, because as Jesus Christ said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He came to save the type of sinners who are mentioned in verses 9 and 10. He came to save the ungodly, the unholy, the profane, murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, manslayers, whoremongers, them that defile themselves, men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. There's forgiveness for sinners. Forgiveness for the chief of sinners. For Paul the persecutor. For Manasseh the idolater. For Matthew the publican. For Rahab the harlot. And for you and for me and for all the sins that we commit. So that there's no sin that's too great for Him to wash with His blood. And so away with that false notion of piety that says, but I'm too great of a sinner. 
There's no way he could forgive me for what I have done in the week gone by or for what I have done in my past. There's forgiveness for the chief of sinners. And that forgiveness comes to us as we are. So that we must also put away that false notion that says, I must improve myself first. I have to get into spiritual shape before I could ever expect to have my sins forgiven. That's putting it all backwards. Because this is a a gracious salvation we're talking about. This is a, a gracious forgiveness. God forgives us as we are on the basis of Christ's saving work. And what that means for us is that the books are clear. There's an utter absolution given to us. All of your sins, child of God, are cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness. All because Christ Jesus came to save sinners. But not only does that mean there's forgiveness for us, it also means there's, we're given new life. That too is a part of the salvation in view. It's not just the salvation that Jesus Christ accomplished for us and on our behalf, but it includes the salvation that He works in us. And that we're given new life. And what an encouragement that is. So that if we're battling against some sin, struggling to put it away, If there's that sin that remains against our will, there's the encouragement to look to Christ knowing that His grace is sufficient. It was sufficient for Paul. Look at the change that Christ wrought in his heart and life so that this blaspheming persecutor was made the one who preached Christ crucified to much of the known world. If we ask, what explains that? How could that be? The answer is, Christ came to save sinners. Not just from the guilt of their sin, but from the power and the corruption of their sin. And that work of God's grace that we see in the heart and life of Paul is a pattern. The work of grace he performs in our own hearts and lives. So that we too can be rest assured, His grace is sufficient for us. There's forgiveness. There's new life and the strength to live out of that new life. And Beloved, you can count on that. Because this is a faithful saying. That's how the Apostle Paul begins this passage. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. This was a saying. That is, this was some common expression. This was a phrase that the Christians in the apostolic era were using to teach others about Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There, in one sentence, is the truth of the gospel. This was a saying. And now the Apostle Paul is telling us, this is a faithful saying. 
This is reliable. This is dependable. This is something you can count on. And for that reason, it's worthy of all acceptation, that it's worthy of being accepted. This is something to believe in. This is something to embrace as your own without any reservation, without any sort of hesitation. Believe this word and appropriate it to yourself. It's a faithful saying. Worthy of all acceptance. And that's true on the one hand, because this saying has been tried and proven. That is, this saying has withstood the test of fiery experience. And we see that in Paul. What else could possibly explain how such a proud, self-righteous Pharisee could ever be led to humbly confess, I am the chief of sinners. It's only because Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. It's a faithful saying. It's worthy of acceptance. But not just because it's been tried and proven, but especially and ultimately because this is the Word of God Himself. This is not Paul's own phrase that he concocted. This is not just the phrase of the early apostolic church, but this is the Word of God. This is the Word of Christ Himself. Because if you look at the book of John, for example, and see all the times that Christ Jesus talks about His own coming into this world, it's clear He came to save sinners so that the church was merely embracing the teaching of Christ Himself. And it's exactly because this is the Word of God, the Word of Christ, that it's a faithful saying. It's worthy of acceptance. So have you accepted this saying? That is, have you believed in this Christ Jesus who came into this world to save sinners? If so, then come. Come to the Lord's table. Humbly confessing, I am the chief of sinners. And hear Him say to you, I forgive you. Amen. Father in heaven, our hearts rejoice to know the wonder of Thy grace in sending Jesus Christ into this world to save such miserable wretches such as we. Blessed be Thy name for the salvation that He has accomplished. And thanks be unto Thee for feeding our souls by Thy Word. 
And now feed and nourish our souls by means of the sacrament. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.